Reformed Baptist Church. And good morning, visitors. Open up to the book of Exodus. If you are visiting or this is your, uh, your, your first time and you're looking for a church, we're working our way through the narrative, the dramatic story that unfolds for us in the second book that God uh, ever wrote through the hand of Moses all those years ago called the book of Exodus, the story of the origins of the, uh, uh, the Israelites, God's people, under that old covenant system. So they've been enslaved in Egypt. They were rescued out of Egypt's slavery through miraculous power in Moses' hand by God. They came out through the miraculous exit through the Red Sea. Now they're wandering the wilderness and have been preserved. Then God appeared to them in fire, smoke, earthquake, lightning, and trumpet noise to give them the Ten Commandments. And now he is explaining to them on top of the Ten Commandments all of the particulars for being his covenant people. We've been exploring the importance of that term, covenant people. They have entered into, through blood sacrifice and verbal agreement and legal uh, uh, writings, they have entered into covenant with the one true living holy God. And so he is giving them rules now. As my people, here's how you live. You want the blessings I put on offer? Here's what you need to obey. And we've come to this section where, where God is describing for them, uh, uh, to Moses uh, to start, the intricate design of the tabernacle. So be in Exodus chapter 26, if you've got their, your Bible there in front of you. Exodus chapter 26. People, humankind, love, love holy places. They love the idea of somewhere where heaven touches earth. This is why your new age auntie loves her little place in the garden underneath her dream catches where she can see the Milky Way. Uh, this is why uh, even atheists, I had an atheist mate and he used to call the, the New York Museum of Natural History an atheist's mecca. I said, man, you're just making yourself sound more and more religious every day, but that's fine. Uh, this is why uh, in Australia, they, they have uh, Uluru. Uh, this is why the Greeks had Mount Olympus. Uh, the, to the Tibetan Buddhists and some of the Hindus, they had the, the mountains of Tibet uh, where, where they would go and set up their monasteries. Mankind, all throughout history, has loved to embody and, and encapsulate and visit these places where it seems to them that the gods, or heaven itself, touches down on to earth. All of the ancient religions had these types of places. And as God comes to his people, the Israelites, under the old covenant system, he's saying to them, in effect, that desire was put there by me. You have that desire for heaven to meet earth because they were, they were once in such close communion and they've now been fractured by sin, so there remains in every person this, this ongoing desire and dream for such a thing. And God comes to the Israelites, and instead of asking them where they think is special, what they want to do to try and reach up to heaven, he condescends to them and gives them a design for a building where he will then truly dwell with them. Not merely in the imagination of the, of the shamans and the priests and the holy people, but in reality, God would actually meet with them. As we study this idea of tabernacle today, tabernacle meaning uh, uh, dwelling place. So as we speak of God's tabernacle, we literally mean his dwelling quarters among the Israelites. It could otherwise be translated like a, a living house. As we talk about God's tabernacle today that he instructs them to, to build through, through Moses as their prophet, we're not just studying a chapter in Exodus. 
And we're not just studying a a random building that the Israelites had. To study and understand the, the theme of tabernacle is actually to understand one of the grand purposes of all of history. And one of the great themes of the entire Bible. That God seeks to restore what was given in creation, him dwelling with man. What was epitomized in the Garden of Eden, God dwelling with man. What was lost in the fall out of paradise, God dwelling with man. What is restored to a degree in the tabernacle, God dwelling with man. What is God's ultimate and eternal plan to the end of the ages through Jesus Christ is for God again to dwell with man. We're studying the whole Bible this morning through the lens of Exodus chapter 26. Now as we first study uh, the the idea of tabernacle, we're going to start right here in the passage, the, the tabernacle unfolded by God, design given to Moses up on that mountain, and I want to remind you, it'll come up in verse 30, I want to remind you that Moses is not just hearing an explanation, that's what's written down, he's also seeing a vision, not just into some future design of the temple that God wants him to build, he's actually seeing into the heavenly place where God actually dwells, uh, above our atmosphere, above the stars and the galaxies, and whatever other dimension, space, or place we want to call it, heaven, where God genuinely dwells, he is actually being given the grace to peer into that and then instructed how to build the tabernacle to shadow that. So so this is what God says to Moses. We don't know exactly what he's seeing, except that he is seeing the actual version of what is being described. Now, I'm I'm not going to read all of the section of chapter 26, unless you're, you're some weird mix of nerd and carpenter, it will just be a little bit confusing and take up more of the time we have today. So instead, I'll be uh, reading sections. I do believe it will be reflected up on the uh, uh, screen behind me, and you can follow there. Otherwise, I'll announce as we skip verses. Verse 1, God says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Verse 7. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the top of the tabernacle. Eleven curtains in all you shall make. Verse 14. And you shall make a tent for the covering of of the tabernacle of rammed skins tanned and a covering of goat skins on top of that. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle out of acacia wood. Verse 29, you shall overlay those frames with gold and you shall make rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay those bars with gold also. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Verse 31, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. That's the veil between holy place and most holy place where God dwelt. Verse 33. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. 
You shall put the mercy seat of the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table with the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. Now, may God, the blessed one and only true God, revealing these things through Moses and now today in our midst, may he bless this to our hearts that we would love Jesus more, glorify God more, and be more like him in our lives. Amen. The word of the Lord given through Moses. When, when you put all of this together that we just read, plus the bits I skipped, and then you add to that the courtyard that is explained in chapter 27, you have a very impressive uh, uh, construction, a very impressive, dazzling, beautiful structure, but it's mobile. It's actually uh, able to be packed up, rolled together, uh, 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 put into carryable sections, uh, much of the clasps unhooked so that different Levites and different people can throw it on their pack, put it on the back of of cattle and and transport it with with rods often. And and this meets both, both purposes of the tabernacle. It is on one hand golden and beautiful, an impressive structure where God can dwell in their midst, but it is also a mobile dwelling place where the people can minister and, he, and it can be taken around with them. It, it meets both purposes. It, it would not meet God's purpose at this point in Israel's history to construct them what he constructed Solomon to do and build a large wooden, stone, marble, golden temple that they will have one day eventually uh, in Jerusalem. The purpose at the moment is to remain mobile. And, and altogether... Basically, you can have the, uh, imagine it in, in three parts. You've got the most holy place, which is a cube. Outside of that, you've got the holy place. That's all under a little roof. But then on the outside of that, you have sort of open to the sky, but a large, about half a footy field uh, courtyard. Uh, that, that original rectangle of the holy place, the actual tabernacle itself, is about 14 and a half meters long, four and a half meters tall, and about four and a half meters wide. So that the first third of that is the most holy place, separated with the large, thick veil, which was just functionally another wall. And then on the outside of that then would be the the rest of the uh, 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 nine-something meter by 4.5 meter rectangle holy place. And the courtyard on the outside was about 45 meters long and 25 meters wide. All the, the surrounded by uh, no roof, but 2.25 meter tall uh, fabric fencing constructed with large acacia wood encased with, uh, with metal clasps and gilding. So on the outside the, the, the was the, the bronze altar, the large barbecue and grill that we spoke of last week. On the inside, through the first veil, through the first curtain, we'll call it, was the lampstand over on this side, giving light, and the table of the presence over on this side with the bread, and then was this large, thick curtain that was only entered once a year by one guy who was the same guy for a whole generation. 
So no, almost nobody went in through here. And this was the most holy place, a perfect cube, just like heaven is described to us in Revelation, a perfect cube where the Ark of the Testimony sat and on top of it the pure gold mercy seat with the two cherubim gilded gold, not gilded, sorry, solid gold constructed on top of that. This was the construction of the tabernacle as God was telling Moses. And, and on the inside, it was... It was almost pure gold. I mean, you didn't see any timber on the inside. Wherever there was timber on the inside of the holy place, it was gilded with gold. The, the large pillars, the, the rings for the curtains, it was the, 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 the furniture, it was all gold. On the outside, the timber was gilded with bronze or silver, and the furniture was made with bronze. And, and there's a strong message that's coming through here. The point is that on the inside is God's dwelling place. It is a lot more valuable, a lot more precious. And on the outside, it's still precious, but, but it's where man ministers. Inside is God's place. Outside is man's place. Bronze out there, gold on the inside where God is. And there's a message that was being sent through all of this. A very, I'm just getting my ADHD is just kicking in and I cannot get rid of this thread. No, no fine twine scarlet yarn over here. Okay, we're back in. We're all, we're all back in. So, so here's the message. That the tabernacle construction was meant to preach to them every single time they laid eyes on it or heard about it or saw it being carried from place to place was, we have a king. Israel has a king and our king is God. That's, that was the message. So, so for other nations of their, of their contemporaries, they would have a palace for the king and a temple for their gods. And what does Israel have? They have one and the same. They have a temple for God, which is a palace for their king because God is their divine king. That, that's why the inside was gold like the kings would live in. It was purple and blue and scarlet, crimson, red, because those are royal colors. That's, that's why they had all that. The, the message being given to them was, our God is our king. The one true God is the only king we need, and he has condescended to live among us. But not so fast. Because the other part of the message that was being sent was that God is dwelling with Israel but not in total communion, not in full communion, not in unrestricted communion. There was much restriction and constriction about this entire relationship God had with Israel. Because unless you were of the one of the 11, uh, sorry, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, unless you were a Levite, you never even got to go in past the curtain into the holy place. And then only if you were the high priest one day a week, and then, uh, one day a year rather, and you didn't see anything anyway because it was filled with, uh, with incense smoke, could you ever go into the most holy place? So, so only a twelfth of the people could go inside where the gold is. Everybody else could be outside in the courtyard as they offered their sacrifices of blood and ate their fellowship food. And maybe at night time they would see the light shining out from underneath the veil. Maybe sometimes as a priest goes in to get another implement or a sharper knife to offer up their lamb, maybe they would see a, a, the, the curtain wave and catch a glimpse of some of the gold on the inside. Maybe. But for most people, uh, they didn't get an, an eye to those things. They were not welcome to come in. The, the Levites were instructed, if any non-Levite tries to come in, stab them, kill them. This is the security over the temple. 
In fact, even the Ark of the Covenant, <coughs> I know what you're thinking, you probably thought like I thought and tried to find a loophole and go, that's okay. Uh, the, the young boys and all the Israelites as they're sort of moving campsite to campsite, I bet they just found the perfect rock settlement that they can look down as the Levites are packing up the tabernacle. Because then you get to see all the gold and if you walk close enough and escape your mother's gaze enough, you can probably catch a glimpse of the Levites carrying this beautiful gold ark, right? Shining in the sun, but no. Even on the traveling, when, when the ark was to be carried, it was wound up. We're told this in numbers. They're given instructions for how to wind it up and cover it with multiple layers of fabric and leather. Why? Because God is in their midst as their divine king. That's true. But the other part of the message is that he is not among them in full communion. That was not possible yet. The blood of Christ had not been spilt yet. There was nothing that would allow and make for and atone a per- for a perfect relationship with God and man yet. <laughs> so the clear message coming through was he's here, but we can't fully go to him. In fact, probably, probably the strongest message, the strongest piece of the tabernacle that, that sent that message, if it wasn't the security guards with big swords, or the, 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 the curtains which you weren't allowed through, was the last veil that, that separated the most holy place from the holy place. Because like we said, that curtain, it was just screaming, get out. It was not like your, your, your wonderful suburban mum has a little welcome come in, welcome mat. It was not like that. It was more like your uncle that lives out uh, west Queensland and it says intruders will be shot. That's the sort of, that's, that's the message that this curtain was supposed to be sending. On it, well, it itself is inches thick of fabric. And the way that it's hung up is actually not to make it an easy access. It's not like it had a little drawstring that opened up and welcomed you. It was more just like a functional wall that you had to squeeze through to get through. It was not meant to be easily opened. And what was clearest of anything, embroidered, we're told, in verse 1 and 2. Embroidered onto the curtain, right there, were pictures of cherubim. Now, do you remember last week when we covered cherubim? What they are, what they're like, what their task is? In our nomenclature, the, the idea of a, of a cherubim, we, short, we, we call them cherubs, and we just think little pudgy, uh, European, golden curled, maybe redhead, little babies with a little harp that sit mostly naked except for a cloth nappy on a cloud. That's what we think of a cherub. And, 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 and biblically, though, the idea of a cherub or a cherubim is a fearsome, hideous, scary animal. Part, part animal, part angel. We, we don't know so much what to make. So next time somebody picks up your child and says, oh, they are like a little cherub. They're starting a fight with you. Right? Biblically, they're, start, they're calling your child ugly, terrifying, and scary. Okay? Because what a cherubim was, was it was lion body, multiple faces, tail, claws, a a human head somewhere, enormous wings, and in Ezekiel, they stand next to the throne room of God as protectors of God's holiness. Back in Genesis 3, we remember they were put in front of the entrance of the Garden of Eden to stop fallen mankind from going back and eating of the tree of eternal life. So they are guardians of God's holy places. They scream, get out, unless you've been invited. Not everybody's welcome. Behind here is a holiness of Yahweh that will consume you. That's what these cherubims are screaming as they've been embroidered on the curtain. God is in their midst, but severely restricted. Not able to be touched, 
handled, drawn near to, approached whenever you've had a bad day, the presence of God could not be seen face to face. Now, at this point, if you allow me to take a little theological tangent, are we okay with that this morning? You're happy? Everyone's in agreement? Perfect, good, doing it anyway. I've got the mic. We, we, we have this, I guess, a narrative, an explanation of what's happening, but we need a theological explanation of something lest we confuse and cross the wires. And the reality is this, that as we talk about God's presence, like where God is, on one level, it makes absolutely no sense to talk about where God is. Because there's no where that God is. You tracking? In another sense, there, there is no where that God is not. He entirely is in every thread of the fabric of our universe, and yet he is not consumed and taken up, entirely located in that area. In other words, God is impossible to locate in the technical term. He has no locus. In other words, he has no center of gravity. There's no such thing as going, I don't, I don't know, don't care how you felt when you trekked the Himalayas. There's no such thing as going to a place and being closer to God. I don't care how, how great the conference was you went to and how much you, you felt emotional at the altar call. Closer to the stage is not technically closer to God, okay? There, there is no actual there's no presence of God. Can I just say that? There is no actual locus or center of God's being because he, he fully con, uh, uh, absorbs or is, 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 in, is not even encapsulated. He, he is what we call, to, to, to just put all of these confusing, difficult to explain concepts, the, the, the theologians, it's called negative theology we, we, or, or positive theology. We, we just say what he's not. Okay? He's not physical. He's not in a place. He's omnipresent. Omni meaning everything, Present meaning where he is. He is, omni he is literally everywhere. He is equally everywhere. He is not even mostly in heaven and, and only partially down here. He, he cannot divide up his essential attributes. He is everywhere. But then the Bible clearly and obviously gives us this secondary category of thinking where God not just, not just where he essentially exists, which is in the universe, everywhere, and beyond the universe, because nothing contains him. He is beyond the universe. But we also get this idea that God chooses to intentionally condescend and make his presence manifest. So it's not as if God, God, God is meeting the Israelites here, so he's a little bit less up in heaven, because about a third of his presence got poured down into the tablet. Not, not, not how it works. Essentially, God is everywhere, nowhere more than he is in any other place, but covenantally. As he has promised to his people, or what we can say, his glory is manifest in certain places where he chooses to make it more known. And in that sense, the Bible does speak of his presence. You're going into the presence of the Lord. That is, that is meaning that you are going somewhere where he has chosen to manifest his glory to his people more potently. That is what we mean. So we've seen this in just the book of Exodus already. At the burning bush, in the pillars of fire, on the top of Mount Sinai, and now in the tabernacle and, and uh, later in history in the temple. God is not limited to that space but he does fill that space with a manifestation of his presence, which is made tangible 
for the sake of the creature who he is in covenant with. It's not by necessity. God can go and leave or take away the presence of his glory from that place whenever he wishes. But it is a gracious condescension for us. And, and we have to say this to make sense of the two, th- the two strands of passages that we have in our Bible. Because otherwise, again, we'll cross hairs. We'll say the Bible contradicts itself or it's, un- it's not understandable. If, on one hand, you have Solomon in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 18. Just as he's constructed the temple for God, he then prays to God and he says this. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Is that even possible? It's a rhetorical question. Everybody hearing it is meant to think, no, not really. He says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. If heaven can't contain God, in fact, if the heavenly place of God where he dwells doesn't even contain him, because just reminders, heaven is a created space. Heaven is not eternal. Heaven is not ontologically God. It was created by God when he made the heavens and the earth to reflect the heavens. A created space with created beings like angels and a created throne and created photons of light, however the physics works in heaven. But it's a created space. And then he created earth to reflect that space. And then at this point in redemptive history, he teaches Moses how to build a tabernacle to look like the first heaven again. But even the heavens of heavens do not contain God. Acts 17, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. He just does He's not situated there. He's not lo- located there. The center of his being is not originating there. He is beyond all, but chooses, as 2 Chronicles 7, the next verse says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Or, or at the end of our book, Exodus, in chapter 40, after they finished building the tabernacle, what does it say? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He's not situated there by some necessary, essential being of his. He is condescending there because of his gracious covenant to his people to meet them. That's what we mean today, as we mean the dwelling place of God. And and as we're holding all these things in tension, this is where we sort of turn New Testament at the moment. As we're holding all these things in tension, uh, that, that God is in their midst, but he's restricted, and, and God is nowhere, yet he's everywhere. And God lives nowhere, but he does fill the tabernacles. We're pulling all these things in tension to, until the thread almost snaps in our little human minds. As we're doing this, let me add some more tension. Here's another thread. In the New Testament, under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, there is no tabernacle slash temple. There's not, I, I don't know how impressive or how much money they spend in, in, in the cathedrals of Spain and Rome, and I love the look of them. I don't know how much your, your cousin was swindled out of thousands of dollars so that he could donate to the tabernacle of the Mormons down in his community. I don't know uh, how much you, you think lowly of this little, uh, you know, humble little building that we're in, but there is no such thing as a building with holy bricks where God now dwells. No such thing as a tabernacle in the new covenant, okay? Get that in your minds. On the other hand, there is a tabernacle temple in the new covenant. 
Are we all happy with that also? Here's where we need to start relating Old Covenant to New Covenant. As we understand the Old Testament in light of the glory, the greater glory of the New Testament in Jesus Christ, we, we can think of it this way. Think of the similarities first between the tabernacle of old and the church of Jesus Christ today. The similarities are that both builders saw the finished product before they started building. That is, to know what they needed to aim at, God graciously gave them this vision into literal heaven to know how to copy it. Moses got this on Mount Sinai. The Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, under the leadership of Jesus Christ, are both said to have gazed into heaven in a prophetic, amazing vision and seen the final, completed, glorious version of the church before her Savior. And and seeing then the beautiful final product of the heavenly Jerusalem, the people of God, the the 144,000 or the uncountable 400 million, the, the elect of all ages gathered in heaven by his vision, then they were set working on the church on earth. And Paul calls himself a, a chief master builder on the church of God, the apostles being the foundations. So, so Moses saw the finished product, and so did the apostles. They were shown the finished product to then get to work. Another similarity is that both of them, the tabernacle and the church, are pictures of heaven. We touched on this before. I, I think sometimes we sort of short-circuit our theology and delegitimize much of the glory of the Old Covenant and sort of cheap out and replace things of the Old Covenant with New Covenant things in ways that we shouldn't do. Here's what I mean. The tabernacle is not a picture of the church. The tabernacle is not replaced by the church. It's not as if everything about the tabernacle was pointing to the church. That's not the case. Nor was the tabernacle pointing back to Eden, ultimately. Rather, think of all the temples throughout Scripture. One was the Garden of Eden itself. The other one was the tabernacle and the temple and the New Testament temple, the church. Now, now each of these things are not pointing to each other or themselves. Each of them are a picture of heaven. So God made heaven and earth. Eden was made to reflect heaven where God dwelt with man on a mountain in beautiful gold and precious metals and stones. It was lost. God establishes the tabernacle, not just to point back to Eden, though it reflected it. It was meant to point up to heaven what Moses was copying. And then the church is not meant to simply say, look, I know it's not a building, but we're just like the tabernacle. No, the writer of Hebrews says, that thing was a shadow of heaven. We are a shadow, an embodiment of filled heaven with saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church is not meant to copy the tabernacle. It's it's a picture of the final state of heaven itself. In this sense, both the tabernacle and the church are pictures of heaven. But then we can look even at the differences. Differences between tabernacle and church. What Moses built and what we enjoy now here today. First of all, the, the builder of the first was Moses, who instructed his craftsmen who then went and built. And what does Hebrews say to us? That, that while he was a faithful in the, under the house of God, Jesus was a faithful builder over the house of God. And the builder of this thing was God himself. So, so Jesus, with his apostles underneath him, and all of his, those ministers after them, is the, is the chief 
architect of the church. We can go further and say that the building itself, the building itself, the, the building in the old covenant system, the tabernacle of God where he met, was a literal, physical structure made of cloth and gold and wood in the tabernacle, stone and marble and gold in the temple later on in Jerusalem once David took Jerusalem. Uh, the tabernacle was a physical structure where people were able to go, but whether people went or not, it was the dwelling place of God. Whereas the church is a spiritual structure made not of rocks but of people called stones in the Bible, living stones. We are people who make the church. We just happen to go to a building. But we are as much at church, whether we gather here in this building or we gather to worship Jesus at a tabernacle, or we gather to meet Jesus in the catacombs or out in the fields like the Puritans who were chased out of their homes. Wherever we meet as God's people, and we must meet as God's people to worship him under his word, but wherever we gather, there becomes the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place of God among his people to bless them. And then we can talk about the place, because the place of the Old Covenant was, was as we just said, uh, the building, the tabernacle, uh, wherever it would move, there would be the center of God's dwelling where people had to gather. Uh, in the church, though, there is no divinely ordained place of worship. We know this, right? There's no divinely ordained spot on the map that is holy for worship. When Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman, she struck up this debate, Right? You're pro-Israel, Jesus. You want Jerusalem to be holy. But, but I'm pro-Samarian. I want, I want our area, our mountain to be holy. And Jesus says, what an antiquated and lame debate about the Holy Land. Catch up with the times, little lady Samaritan. There is a time coming, which ha started happening when I arrived, because I'm the Messiah, when God will not instruct us to worship on this mountain or that mountain, but God will look on those who worship in spirit and in truth. Such people, the Father, is looking to worship him. It's not a place. It is a spirit and truth conglomeration. So, so not a mountaintop, not at a saint's gravesite, not at a cathedral or a church building. There are no more sacred places. We could worship and have church in a jail cell. Bring it on. What is sacred is the spiritual gathering of the people intentionally under its leadership to receive instruction from Jesus through the word. That is where Jesus' glory dwells. So if we can go just a step further, all these lines of tension, we'll add one. That in the new covenant, it, it's not primarily that the church is the tabernacle, despite everything I just argued. It is primarily that Jesus is our tabernacle and we are, merely the, the, we are merely the earthly representation of his body. Jesus is the ultimate, better, perfect, pure tabernacle where God dwells with man. It's impossible to speak of the language of tabernacle in Scripture, the theme of God dwelling with man, and then skip John chapter 1 verse 14. It's impossible. We, we can't be faithful to Scripture and forget to read John chapter 1, verse 14 on this topic. God dwells with man. That's what tabernacle means. Listen to John chapter 1, 14, as he describes the incarnation of God becoming man. God dwells with man. 
makes his glory manifest. That's what tabernacle means. John 1, 14. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. He dwelt among us, tabernacle. We've seen his glory, God's incarnate uh, manifestation. This is what we just sung. This is what we sing at Christmas of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When that, one of my favorite stanzas of any song, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man, with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus, the tabernacle of God with man, being here God's glory for us. And then Jesus went further in John chapter 2, verse 21, as he was debating with the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They had no clue what he meant because they were trapped in old covenant thinking. The temple is this building. And Jesus says, no. The temple is my body where God dwells with man and puts on display his glory. Therefore, Jesus is the taste of heaven who manifests God's glory among mankind. And he's not, unlike the tabernacle, he's not hidden away. He's not the back room behind a veil underneath an enormous golden lid. That's not Jesus anymore. The glory of God is Jesus in, in mankind's life walking around, eating with sinners, talking face-to-face with prostitutes, sitting down with tax collectors, calling into his studentship terrorists, being touched by women bleeding and unclean, being approached by drunkards and the demon-possessed. He was immensely approachable. Jesus was not hidden away. He was on full display for everybody to see, for everybody to touch. He is the meeting place of God with man. He is the curtain, the veil that touched both sides of the holy place. Jesus is that thick veil that touches God's presence and touches mankind's gathering. Jesus is that curtain who was torn, Matthew 27 tells us, as Jesus' life went out from him, and he breathed his last on the cross. The curtain miles away in the temple that separated God from man was torn top to bottom because God was tearing it. Jesus is the curtain who by his torn flesh, his ripped body, his shed blood, his punishment on the cross, finally opens up the way for for man to enter into God's presence very well then, does the writer of the Hebrews say in chapter 10, Therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. It is a blasphemous, worthy of death priest in the Old Covenant. If he stands at the holy place, stands at the most holy place, opens up the curtain and dares to say, come on in, he would be put to death. Let us all draw near, have confidence, let's go in. Death, immediate consumption by fire. But in the New Covenant, 
under a greater high priest whose blood was shed, who doesn't open up an old and dead way by dead animals' blood, but opens up a new and living way by his eternal blood, his divine blood in human flesh. He opens up the way for us. God now dwells with man in Jesus. Man now dwells with God through Jesus. The way is opened up to God by Jesus, and the glory of God is manifest in Jesus. So, people who aren't Christians yet, enter. The message that the Bible screams at you now is not stay back, you're unholy, God doesn't want to touch you, God doesn't want to see you, here's a ceremony to go through, maybe you'll be accepted. The message of the new covenant that makes the gospel of Jesus so infinitely much more better than the message of death in the old covenant is that you are commanded by the invitation of God himself, booming his voice through preachers, through the word, is come near. Draw near to God's holy place. Sprint into the most holy place by faith in Jesus, trusting that his blood and his flesh torn is the promise of God to you that you may and must come as the only way to avoid God's wrath. It used to be that you come near God, you're burdened with wrath. You stay away to avoid God's wrath, but now the only way to avoid God's wrath for your sins which are many, is to sprint to Jesus and trust in what he says, that his flesh was torn for you and that by him you will be accepted. Jesus is the New Testament temple of the new covenant. This is why Paul then goes and writes in Ephesians 2, that the church is the household of God. That's temple language. Household of God Christ himself being the cornerstone, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All of the, the, Paul is just piling up language of tabernacle and temple to say this spiritual existence, this church, this gathering of saints joined together in membership and mission is what God is now building in the world. We are, we are privileged and honored. But the church earns and deserves our service. This is what Spurgeon said. He, he said he was, he was having this sort of allegorical vision, right? Not a real vision, but he was describing the church being built throughout the ages in his, in his mind's eye. And he says, see, I, I see the stones. That's, that's us, spiritual stones. He says, I see the stones lying in all their places, being placed down, and the church is rising. The minister's like wise master builders, are there running along the wall, putting each spiritual stone in its place. Each stone is leaning on that massive cornerstone, Christ, and every stone depending on the blood and finding its security and its strength in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the elect and precious one. Do you see the building that rise as each one of God's chosen people is brought to him, called in by grace and quickened to life? Do you mark the living stones as in sacred love and holy brotherhood they are knit together? Have you ever entered the building and, and see how these stones lean on one another, bearing each other's burden and so fulfilling the law of Christ? Do, do you mark how the church is joined to the cornerstone and then each stone bound to the next and the next to the next till the whole building becomes one? How, how amazing. And now open your wide eyes and see what a glorious building 
is the church of God. Don't think small things of the church of God. It is what Jesus is doing in the world now until the end. We live, to go back to tabernacle language, we are living our whole life on top of that bronze altar. Sacrifice to God, offered as spiritual sacrifices. The church's witness, her message, the gospel, is that lampstand standing there, shedding light to the nations. The walls do not keep people out, but they are our holy standards of living that mark us out. The threads that hold every wall and curtain together is the love of Christ shed abroad in our heart. And we beckon everybody, come in, draw near, and behold the glory of the Lord made manifest here. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There is no other way. And Christian, work hard for this church as God beautifies her through history. Let's pray. God, often we tremble. We come before you and we are fearful. We are scared of what you might do to us because of your holiness. We, we feel like drawing back because of our sin. We, we can't believe that there would be an invitation day after day with new mercies every morning that we can keep on coming into the holy presence of God. We, we shake and we tremble under your, your fearsomeness and wrath. But Lord God, we are living under an old covenant paradigm if we think that way. For those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have been called out of sin to belong to Jesus, as those who by a simple and mere belief, a, a, a weak little faith that we just trusted in Jesus, by that alone, we are made one with him. We receive his righteousness, his blessedness, and his, 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 his rights to be in the presence of God. And so, God, with a new covenant way of thinking, with a gospel assurance, I ask that you, you make each one of us believe what is so much better about the new than the old, what is so much better about Jesus than Moses, what is so much better about the message for the church than the message for, for, for the tabernacled Israel is this, that we can draw near despite our sin. Father God, please, please allow us. There were some Christians among us now who are weak in assurance, who are fearful of you. And I ask that you would bring them in full assurance into the holy places, to the throne of grace, the mercy seat which is before us, that we might find from Jesus Christ strength and grace in time of need. We don't need to change, repent, and get better before we can pray to him. We come to you and ask, Lord Jesus Christ, for the strength to repent, for the grace to do better and obey better, Lord Jesus Christ, you primarily. Father God, I ask that if there is anyone here who is still outside the camp, who is still looking on from the outside on this church, and to them it looks silly and foolish and the message sounds boring, Father God, I ask that you would quicken them to life. Give them, give them spiritual eyes to see the, the dimension that they have no understanding of before this, that they would understand the church is the dwelling place of the one true God, and that in Jesus, built on the cornerstone, there is forgiveness of all of their sins. Please bring them in, Lord God. Change their heart. Quicken them to life. And glorify your Son through so doing. We pray all of these things in the Master Builder, in the Priest, in the Prophet and King's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church 
visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.